Please pray with me again. Father, we come now before you, approaching your word. And Father, we ask you for your help. We ask that you would send your spirit to do what only you can do, to implant in our hearts the living word that is able to give us life and to give us hope and to give us joy. Father, we thank you uh, for this word, even though it is a hard word, a word about judgment. Father, we thank you for the hope of salvation that there is in this word for us. Father, we pray that you would bless your church this morning, that you would help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, you require of your people a heart of humility that is obedient to your word. But Father, we need you to give us what you require. Would you give us that heart? Father, would you do it for the glory of the name of your son, Jesus? We ask in his name. Amen. Well, Happy New Year. It's hard to believe, isn't it, that 2021 is over and here we are in 2022. Uh, as you can see in your outlines, we're not going to deviate to a special New Year's text this morning. We'll be uh, in Genesis 7. But I do want to take a few minutes at the beginning here for us to think about something that we usually connect with the new year. Traditionally, there's something that people make this time of year having to do with goals, usually connected with finances, diet, exercise, work, family. What do we call these goals that we make at this time of year? Resolutions. Yes, New Year's resolutions. Well, what is a New Year's resolution? At its most basic, a New Year's resolution represents an agenda or a plan. When people make a New Year's resolution, they are theoretically committing to a certain course of action or to the development of a new habit, habit pattern in the new year. What I want us to think about for a moment is this. Is this a biblical idea, this making of New Year's resolutions. And I would submit to you that it is a biblical idea, that it's very biblical to pursue a, a, a new thought, a way to pause and to do this even every day, and particularly on certain occasions. God has built this uh, originally into the life of Israel, and he's built this also into the life of the church. And so we see that it is right and biblical for us to take time to consider ways in which we should resolve to change our habits and to pursue better courses of action in our lives. So at the bottom level, yes, the idea of a New Year's resolution is biblical. But now think for a moment about what our eyes tend to be on when we make these resolutions. Perhaps most notoriously, our eyes are on the bathroom scale as we lament our indulgence in so much feasting during recent weeks. And at the same time as that one, our eyes are on images designed to bombard us, especially at this time of year, of people who have mastered their diets and workouts and have fit and healthy bodies to show for it. And we think, there, that's what I want. That would be an improvement, and I'm going to resolve to do the hard work this year that it takes to look like that. Or perhaps our eyes are on our bank statements. And we think, okay, the extra spending and gift giving has been fun, but that monthly government check isn't coming anymore, and we should tighten our belts a bit. By the end of 2022, wouldn't it be nice to have cultivated some extra financial discipline and to have a decent cash reserve to, to show for it by the end of the year? That's a good New Year's resolution. Or perhaps our eyes are on our relationships. You might think, I'm going to be better about listening to my wife, 
or about spending time with my kids or about investing at church. I see the things that I've been spending my time on have left me too empty this past year. And my New Year's resolution is to invest in relationships. That way, I'll feel much more fulfilled by this time next year. Now, if it seems like I'm about ready to condemn these things, let me just say that none of these are bad resolutions. But at the same time, they all have something in common that can be a trap for us. What do all of these have as their focus, at least as I've worded them? Generally speaking, these and about a million other resolutions we could make all have earthly, selfish good as their goal. I will feel better if I look a certain way, if I weigh less, if I have more money, if I can gain more fulfillment from my relationships. I will feel better. I will be better if I can work hard to achieve some of these goals. Now, these are the things of everyday life, and certainly we do have a responsibility to be good stewards in these areas of our lives. However, if our eyes are on these things, and as a result, our pursuits and habits are driven by them, we risk missing the warning Scripture gives repeatedly in connection with our text for today. Listen to these words from Jesus as he connects the events of the flood to the need for vigilance in the lives of his followers. These words of Jesus come from Matthew chapter 24, starting with verse 38. For as in those days, Jesus says, those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. And notice, these are just the things of everyday life. They were doing these things, he says, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. And of course, as we read this morning already in 2 Peter 3, as Russ read earlier, Peter uses the events of the flood in a very similar way. And as you see on your outlines, Peter gives us the key question for our sermon this morning. Directing our attention to the reality of the flood judgment as taught in Genesis 7, and to its connection with the certainty of the coming judgment, Peter writes this, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Beloved, this is the question. The question is not whether you should make a resolution. You should do so, and in all likelihood you will do so. The question is, where will your eyes be when you do? And whatever you see when you gaze there, what difference will that make in the kind of life you lead going forward. What we find in today's text are three components of God's salvation through judgment. These can help teach us about the kind of life we must live in holy conduct and godliness in light of these things. And so if you haven't already, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 7. And when you're there, please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. The word of God from Genesis 7. Then Yahweh said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this generation. 
You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, too, a male and his female. Also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep their seed alive on the face of the earth. For after seven more days, I will send rain on the surface of the earth, forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. And Noah did according to all that Yahweh had commanded him. Now Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Of, every, of clean animals and animals that are not clean, and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, by twos they came to Noah into the ark, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. Now it happened after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on this day all the fountains of the great deep split open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. Then the rain came upon the earth for forty days and forty nights. On this very day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every fowl, every winged creature. So they came to Noah into the ark by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and Yahweh closed it behind him. Then the flood came upon the earth for forty days, and the water multiplied and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. And the water prevailed and multiplied greatly upon the earth, and the ark went on the surface of the water. And the water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains under all the heavens were covered. The water prevailed fifteen cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh that moved on the earth breathed its last, that is, birds and cattle and beasts, and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth, as well as all mankind, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, of all that was on the dry land died." Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. And they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah remained and those that were with him in the ark. And the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. What we find in these 24 verses is God's account through Moses of the most staggering earthly example of God's salvation through judgment. As we began to see last week in Genesis 6, one of the keys to understanding God's salvation, even though this can be a little bit difficult to take, is to understand that God's salvation is accomplished through judgment. Although the supreme instance of this is the judgment that took place against Jesus on the cross, what we find here in Genesis 7 is an account of how God's judgment has historically touched this earth in a way that brings both the terror of judgment to the unrepentant and the hope of salvation 
to those who trust in the Lord. As you see on your outlines, we find this salvation through judgment broken into three components in this text. Starting in verse 1, we find the first component of God's salvation through judgment. Number one, a holy separation. In verse 17 of the previous chapter, God gave his most detailed description yet of the judgment he was about to bring on the earth. He says this, As for me, behold, I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall breathe its last. So God was going to flood the earth with water, and all life, including all people on the earth, would die in the flood. Alongside this depiction of coming judgment in chapter 6, we also saw God's promises and instructions by which he would sustain the lives of Noah and his family. Here, in verse 1 of chapter 7, God begins to fulfill these promises and instructions as he calls Noah to separate from all life, especially all of human life on the earth, by entering the ark with only his family. Verse 1, Then Yahweh said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this generation. Now, in addition to this command to Noah, who alone is righteous in his generation, a further key to understanding the dominant theme here of holy separation is found starting in God's instructions in verse 2. You see, whereas in chapter 6, God had indicated only generally that he was going to bring animals in pairs to be preserved in the ark, here he specifies that he is making a distinction among the animals. God says to Noah, You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female. Now there's some question here as to how Noah would have known which of the animals were clean, given that some, that specification is not given in Scripture until Leviticus chapter 11. But this is a question that is actually easily resolved by the fact that it was not Noah who was in charge of selecting the animals for the ark. God had said back in verse 20 of chapter 6 that the animals to board the ark would come to Noah. And we will find here in chapter 7, verses 9 and 15, that this is exactly what happened. And so implicitly, even though the details aren't recorded here in Genesis 7, if Noah hadn't already known, he would have learned from this event which animals were clean. They would have been the ones showing up in seven pairs instead of just one pair. But more importantly for our purposes, we need to ask this question. What is the point of this distinction between unclean and clean animals? Here it will help us to think ahead to another book of the Bible, also written by Moses, where the theology of this is really worked out, and that book is Leviticus. What is the point of all the laws regarding food and clothing and mildew and disease? The point of all the Old Testament laws that talk about the reality of contamination and the need for separation. The point of those laws is the same as the major point of the book of Leviticus, in a word, holiness. In the context of Leviticus, God had brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. They were to be a holy people set apart for God's holy purpose. Israel was to be a holy nation, and they were supposed to look different from the other nations in many specified ways, including things like how they worshipped, what they wore, how they lived, and relative to its importance here, what they ate. And so if we think about this theology 
of a distinction between clean and unclean animals making its first appearance here in Genesis 7, and of how this is supposed to teach in the Bible's history a separation of God's people from other people, setting them apart as a people of holiness. Is that something we see in this text? The answer is yes. And hopefully this becomes clear, that God is connecting these two things here. God is calling Noah to separate himself and his family from the world that is under judgment. And he is introducing the separation of animals into the categories of clean and unclean as an object lesson that would teach God's people about holiness throughout the Old Testament. Noah and his family, and animals to be used for their food, and then we'll see later for their worship, are set apart here unto a holy separation. This holy separation is affected in verses 5 through 10 through a combination of Noah's obedience and God's sovereign action. In verse 5, the emphasis on Noah's complete obedience, which we saw last week, is repeated using the same wording from chapter 6, verse 5. And Noah did according to all that Yahweh had commanded him. This obedience is further described in verses 6 and 7 as the now 600-year-old Noah enters the ark with his family. In verses 8 and 9, the animals come to the ark just as God had said. And finally, the separation of Noah from the rest of the world is accomplished in verse 10 with the arrival of the flood. It says, Now it happened after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. This is the first component of God's salvation through judgment. God separates his people, those he sees as righteous, unto a holy separation from all others on the earth who are subject to his coming judgment. So what does this mean for us, this idea of a holy separation for God's people? Well, consider again how you might think about things like a New Year's resolution. If we are called, like Noah was, to a holy separation, what difference will that make in terms of how we make plans and set goals? Recall the way that Jesus and Peter later apply this lesson. The world is full of concerns about circumstantial well-being and happiness. We're going to save the specifics for later, but for now, just realize that our goals, our plans, and even our resolutions should generally not be like the world's. This is true at least when it comes to what they are at their root in terms of motivation, and then at their ultimate end, what they're oriented to. This is why we find verses in the Bible like 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes this, Or what agreement has a sanctuary of God with idols? For we are a sanctuary of the living God. Just as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. God calls us here, and this is a New Testament text, 2 Corinthians. God calls his people to a holy separation. Similarly, we read in 1 Peter 4, verse 3, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have worked out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Friends, the world has its goals. We are to have different goals. 
Peter assumes, rightly, that we all have experience pursuing the things the world desires. And although some items in his list might not appeal to you, consider that we are able to make anything, even good things like marriage and family and work. We, like the world, can and do make even good things into all-consuming desires. In other words, into idols. And the pursuit of these things, even good things, if we pursue them for their own sakes, will dull our senses and cause us to look like the world. Ultimately, this will lead us to ignore the Bible's warnings and to pursue the world even as we head with it to its judgment. With verse 11, we find a shift to a focus on the historical timing and the historical physical phenomena of the events of the flood. And with this shift, we find our second component of God's salvation through judgment. Number two, starting in verse 11, a gracious preservation. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on this day, all the fountains of the great deep split open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. Then the rain came upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. One of the first observations we should make in these verses has to do with the specificity of the date given. This was the 600th year of Noah's life, the second month, and the 17th day of that month. On this day, it says, all the fountains of the great deep split open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. Now, this is something I've already pointed out in Genesis, so I won't spend a lot of time on it here. But once again, what we find here is very clear evidence that these early chapters of Genesis are historical narrative. The historicity of this cannot be dismissed by saying this is some other genre. Myth and even poetry do not assign such specific dating to events. And here, with the specific dates, it is obvious that God, through Moses, is identifying the exact day, the 17th day of the second month of the 600th year of Noah's life, when he and his family entered the ark and the flood began. Now, this is further emphasized with the first few words of verse 13. In the Hebrew, this is an idiom, literally, in the bone of this day. And as it says probably in your Bible, that just means in this very day. So the specificity, again, is just the emphasis. This is impossible to mistake for any honest interpreter. It is a claim to historical fact. Now, why belabor this point? Well, most essentially because we need to know that God's word is trustworthy. As many advocates of biblical inerrancy have explained over the years, if the Bible can't be trusted in everything it claims down to the smallest historical detail, then it can't possibly be trusted in the big things. In other words, if the historical events it reports relative to the flood are not true history, then how can we trust that other historical events that the Bible reports, like the death and resurrection of Jesus, actually happened? As Paul argues in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if we lose the history, we lose the theology. If Christ isn't raised, then your faith is in vain, and you're dead in your sins. It is clear from these verses, especially, that the book of Genesis is historical narrative, just like the gospel accounts of Jesus' resurrection. And it must be read and proclaimed as such. Continuing in Genesis 7, we find that this historical emphasis is directly connected. And so here's part of why it's so important. It's directly connected with God's gracious preservation. Verse 13, On this very day Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, 
And Noah's wife and the three wives of his son with them entered the ark. And notice, in Peter's later recounting that we read this morning, he says, he counts the number of people there. Eight people were preserved to the ark. Peter is treating this as historical fact. Verse 14, they and every beast after its kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every fowl, every winged creature. So they came to Noah into the ark by twos of all flesh, in which was the breath of life. We saw in chapter 6 that God was making two promises that seemed to be in tension with each other. He would extinguish all life that was in the earth, but at the same time, he would preserve Noah and his family. Here in these verses, we find that on the very day, the specific historical day, when the earth for the first time split so that the floodwaters would come up from the ground, and when the windows of heaven opened so that the floodwaters would come down from the sky, that very same day, God was faithful to preserve in Noah and his sons and in the animals he brought into the ark, all flesh which was in, in which was the breath of life. Now recall also from chapter 6, from the language of God's repentance and the actions that he said would accompany it, that we saw that God was going to uncreate everything he had made. This was God's judgment against creation. It had corrupted itself, and God's bringing of destruction would simply confirm and complete the self-destruction that man had begun. But we find here, with this gracious preservation, that God is not just destroying the creation. Here he is also making provision for a new creation. As he puts Noah and his family in the ark, together with male and female animals who can repopulate the earth, God is also making provision for a new creation. He's putting the seed, so to speak, of a new creation in the ark. Verse 16 restates this in a way that emphasizes God's decisive role. It says, And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and Yahweh closed it behind him. You see, Yahweh had given his commands and instructions. With Noah, he, we find that he had the heart to obey all of those instructions. With the animals, they simply do what Yahweh had appointed them to do. They enter the ark as part of all flesh, which Yahweh is going to preserve. But then note, especially the words at the end of verse 16, and Yahweh closed it behind him. While God gave Noah a stewardship in his own salvation and Noah diligently obeyed, we find here one more indication that this was God's preservation from start to finish. God had seen the misery of his people. God had decided to act. God had set apart Noah as righteous and blameless before him, through whom human life and the promise of its redemption was to be preserved through the judgment. And here, in terms reminiscent of the Psalms, it is God who finishes the job. Listen to these similar words from the Psalms. Psalm 34, verse 7. The angel of Yahweh encamps around those who fear him. Psalm 125, verse 2. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so Yahweh surrounds his people from now until forever. And then the wording that's most similar from Psalm 139, verse 5. You have enclosed me behind and before, and you have put your hand upon me. Beloved, this is what Yahweh does. He graciously preserves his people, accomplishing salvation through the obedience of his servant. And it is he who encloses us 
in his salvation. So we've seen, first, a holy separation, that God made a distinction between his people, whom he would save, and all others who would perish. And now we've seen a gracious preservation. While God has commanded and taught his people to be set apart unto holiness, ultimately God shows us that our preservation is his work, his accomplishment. Building on what we've observed already from the first component, that we are to be different in our goals and pursuits and plans, what difference does this second component of God's salvation through judgment make for us? In large part, this is a matter of motivation. What is the benefit of a holy separation on its own? Israel's history answers this question in abundance. And I think this is part of what's on Paul's mind when he writes in Colossians 2, verse 23, that distinctions between clean and unclean, reflected in commandments like do not taste, do not touch, such distinctions and rules have no value on their own. For there to be any value whatsoever in a holy separation, that holy separation must be connected with God's gracious preservation. In other words, beloved, we need Christ. We need the seed promise preserved here in Genesis 7 in the ark through Noah, and in him and with him, the promise of a new creation. Why is it that we should be ready, and not just ready, but eager for our desires and plans and New Year's resolutions to look different from the world? Because, and this is the positive side of our motivation, we have Christ. We have the promise of a new creation, such that all the pain and toil and grief of curse and death, as we've seen in preceding chapters, all of it we will find is covered by the waters of God's judgment in Genesis 7. But the hope of our salvation is secured. It's guaranteed here through God's gracious preservation. So we've seen that the first two components of God's salvation through judgment, a holy separation and a gracious preservation, are here in Genesis 7. We find with the third component that the motivation for God's people to be separate and holy is not only positive, it's also negative. Component number three of salvation through judgment, starting in verse 17, a mighty devastation. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water multiplied and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. And the water prevailed and multiplied greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the surface of the water. The major emphasis in these verses, and it continues through verse 24, is on the all-consuming power of God's judgment. God had made clear by the end of chapter 6 that his judgment would be accomplished by means of a flood, and here this is graphically fulfilled. The power or the might of this devastation is related through the text in a number of ways. First, that the flood came upon the earth for 40 days. Later, both in Exodus, when Moses spends 40 days and 40 nights on Sinai, and then later still in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, in both of those cases, as here, 40 days represents a long time. This is a constant 40-day-long deluge of floodwaters on the earth. Secondly, it says repeatedly that the water multiplied. We find this in verse 17 and then verse 18, that the waters multiplied greatly. 
this word multiply is supposed to call to mind the creation mandate that man was to be fruitful and multiply. But here, instead of people multiplying on the earth, the floodwaters are multiplying to the end that all people will be blotted out of it. Once again with this, we see that this is God's uncreation of what he had made. Moreover, in verse 18, it says, the waters prevailed. This term is used three more times. The waters are said to prevail more and more in verse 19. They prevail again in verse 20 and once more in verse 24. And I hope you're catching the repetition of all of this, the great multiplication, multiplying again and again, prevailing more and more. Relative to the term prevail, important here is to note that this term has a connotation of military victory. We can see this then as God's mighty military victory. Recall the rebellion instigated in the garden when the serpent showed up and humanity rebelled with him, first in Adam and Eve and then, as we've seen since, in the great ones on the earth who conspired with the sons of God, the fallen angels. Men and angels had gone to war against God and thereby against those who belonged to God. And if you think about it, doesn't this line up with what we find in so much of the Bible? For example, in Psalm 2, we read that the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. The great ones of the earth and the powers of the air, the thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities, all of these are in willful rebellion against Yahweh. They're at war with God. And in Genesis 6, as we saw last week, God surveyed the land and he determined that he was going to restrain this rebellion. Here in verses 18 to 24, we find that God's judgment prevails. This is a scene where God's mighty military victory is in view. Now, I read a moment ago from Psalm 2, and as you may know, it's generally thought that Psalms 1 and 2 are connected by more than just their adjacent placement in the Bible, and perhaps even that they were originally one psalm. I was struck by that connection as I considered this week the second part of verse 20 here in Genesis 7, where it says, the waters prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. In Psalm 1 verse 5, it says that the wicked will not stand in the judgment. And I couldn't help but be struck by this thought, that as God's waters of judgment prevailed, they literally made this true on the earth. Once the waters covered even the tallest mountains, there was literally no place left to stand on the earth. God's judgment, his mighty, greatly multiplying judgment prevailed, and no one could stand. Continuing on, the devastating effects of this mighty judgment are clearly seen. Verse 21, And all flesh that moved on the earth breathed its last. That is, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth, as well as all mankind. All in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, of all that was on the dry land, died. In these verses, with their emphasis on death, we find fulfillment of at least two of God's earlier statements. First, God had said in chapter 2, verse 17, that the consequence of sin would be death. Just 10 verses earlier, in chapter 2, verse 7, he had given life 
to man. As he formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so the man became a living being. The words of verse 22 are intended to call that to mind. As all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life perished. God removed that breath. Likewise, this makes good on God's statement in chapter 6 verse 3. That his spirit or breath would not strive or remain with man forever. The 120 year time frame of chapter 6, verse 3, has expired. And God here removes the breath of his spirit from the nostrils of all flesh, which he had placed there to begin with back in chapter 2. Now, although this judgment is seen here to be principally against man who had rebelled, it is against all creation as well. We find that all flesh includes not just all mankind, but also the birds and the cattle and the beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth. Again, the very same language used in the creation account to describe the good creation God had made is used here of God's judgment of uncreation. Everything God had created, he destroys. Verse 23 recapitulates this both for emphasis and as a summary. It says, Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, And they were blotted out from the earth. And then verse 24, the waters prevailed upon the earth 150 days. With this, the mighty devastation of God's judgment of uncreation is seen to be absolute. Every living thing is blotted out. And notice here the similarity to the situation before creation, back in Genesis 1. Remember that everything was formless and void, and what was over the surface of the deep? Only the waters. God's creatures had gone to war against him. And here we find that he has fought back as promised. While the flood does not represent the decisive battle, it is the first one we see in Scripture. And its results are undeniable. Is it any wonder that as he looks on the scheming rebellion of the kings and the authorities of the world, as it says in Psalm 2, He who sits in the heavens laughs. There is no one who can stand in the mighty devastation of God's judgment. Now you may have noticed that there were a couple of details in these final verses which I haven't addressed. Again, there's some tension here which we have been observing throughout this narrative, extending back to chapter 6. Even in the midst of this third component, a mighty devastation, There is overlap in these verses with God's gracious preservation. We find here, indeed, salvation through judgment. Most straightforwardly, in verse 23, even as every living thing, including all mankind, is blotted out upon the face of the land, yet it says Noah remained and those that were with him in the ark. And notice that this accompanies the word prevailed again in verse 24, the waters prevailed The effect this creates, rightly understood, is that the preservation of Noah and his family in the ark is actually part of God's military victory. The rebellion against God was also a rebellion against his seed, against not only the promised Messiah, but all who are with him and in him as the seed of the woman, which of course includes Noah. 
And so part of God's victory is the defense and preservation of his seed, which was attacked by the rebellion. Backing up a little further, we catch a glimpse of this also in verse 17. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water multiplied and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. What we see here at the very least is that the ark is rising and being lifted up above the earth so that those in it can escape the judgment. This again would be part of God's gracious provision of salvation through judgment. Now this next part I don't want to make too much of, mainly because I wasn't able to find other commentators who mention it. But the wording here is strikingly similar to other texts connected with God's messianic salvation. What we find here is the same wording as in other places where the Messiah is said to be high and lifted up. First, in Balaam's prophecy of the Messiah in Numbers 24, verse 7, it says, The seed and the king of Jacob will be lifted up higher than Agag. And then much later, in Isaiah 52, verse 13, which starts the, the major portion of the suffering servant there in Isaiah 53, Yahweh says this of his servant, the Messiah, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Finally, in John 12, verse 32, in describing his own judgment at the cross, Jesus connects these words with himself. He says this, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Now, what is the significance of this? Well, even if it's not linguistically connected, which I think that it is, all of this is certainly connected theologically. At the crescendo of his mighty devastation, in the midst of the judgment God pours out in the flood, we find this hope. The ark and those in it are preserved. And even so, at the crescendo of judgment poured out at the cross, even as Christ is high and lifted up on the cross above the earth, he draws all men to himself and all who are in him are preserved. The promise of a new creation is preserved both through the mighty devastation of the flood and through the mighty devastation of the cross. This third component of God's salvation through judgment shows most clearly of all that God's salvation is one that is through judgment. And so, beloved, we return to the question, in light of all of this, in light of the historical judgment of the flood and all of the rich theology we find connected with it, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? What difference should this make in your lives, in your plans, in your decisions, in your actions today, in the new year, and always? Many of you are familiar with John Bunyan's classic, The Pilgrim's Progress. And if you're not, maybe that should be your first resolution. Go read The Pilgrim's Progress. As Christian is on his way to the celestial city, and at this point he's accompanied by his friend Faithful, on their way to the celestial city, Christian and Faithful find that they must pass through a town called Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair has every kind of delight and diversion its townspeople can conceive of. And they begin offering all of these supposed enjoyments to Christian and Faithful as soon as they enter the town. Much to the surprise of the town's residents, Christian and faithful have absolutely no interest in the pleasures on offer 
at Vanity Fair. Why is this? It's because Christian had left what was once his home, a place called the City of Destruction. Although Christian was born in the same condition as the people of Vanity Fair, he had received a summons from the Celestial City. That is to say, in keeping with Bunyan's allegory, Christian had been set apart unto a holy separation. And even as he looked forward to the promised joy to the new creation of the celestial city, Christian knew the truth about Vanity Fair and its diversions. Just like the city of destruction, Vanity Fair was already judged. Friends, this is the lesson of the flood. Where does Bunyan get this theology? How do we understand biblically that this world is already judged? How can we know that the diversions on offer from this world, the fleshly delights, the allurements and entertainments reflected in Bunyan's Vanity Fair? How do we know that to to pursue the things that the world loves is to pursue judgment? How do we know even that, as Jesus said, to pursue eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage? How do we know that pursuing these things for their own sakes will lead us invariably to judgment? We know the same way Jesus said we know by looking at the flood. Again, beloved, there is a negative side to this. A whole world of people in whose nostrils was the breath of life, God's gracious gift. They were judged, and they perished in judgment because their desires and pursuits, and yes, their resolutions, were shaped by this world and its enticements. But there is a positive side also. There is salvation through judgment. And what God preserved through Noah, the promise of the coming Messiah, beloved, he has come. And you, like Noah, can find your refuge in him. And that he came, he died the death you deserved. And in that he promises to come again to establish the new creation. Where we can have eternal life with God, which he has won and will win as his judgment prevails on the earth. Now, as I said, I want to find, or spend our final moments considering a few specifics of what this might look like for us. If you take a moment to mark this change of year by surveying your own habits and choices and priorities, your trajectory in life, what do you see? Are you marked by a holy separation? Is your hope in the promised new creation because you know that this world, with its priorities and pleasures and sins and their effects, is already judged? And that these will be completely eradicated from your experience one day soon? Is this reality where your hope lies? Or do your hopes and dreams and resolutions look more like those of the world? If you haven't trusted Christ before today for his salvation, the answer to this question is probably easy. Your hope has been in this world and somehow gaining a better version of the life it supposedly offers. Borrowing from Peter once more, I would exhort you to repent. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, verse 20, The patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal of a good conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What does Peter teach with this connection? Simply this. If you trust Christ for his salvation, you die with him. 
Like Noah, you die to this world that is under judgment. And your willingness to enter the waters of baptism corresponds with the judgment of the flood. You willingly judge your old self and the world to which it was attached, to which your hopes and dreams were tied, and you choose instead to identify with Jesus. You are in him, in his death, and raised with him from the waters of judgment to walk in newness of life in a new creation. And so, if you haven't done so already, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And for those who have done this already, are you living like it? I'm not saying you shouldn't make resolutions that reflect good stewardships of such things like physical health and finances. But I am asking this. Do your habits and goals and priorities reflect your knowledge that this world is already judged? And that your hope is in the promised new creation? Here are a few more detailed diagnostic questions for you. Do you find yourself prioritizing physical nourishment or sleep over time spent reading God's Word? When it comes to a choice between church and another event scheduled for the Lord's Day, which are you more likely to choose? In the give and take between spending money on yourself and spending it on God's work here at home or around the world, where do you show that your treasure is? Do you plan to spend more time on physical exercise and getting your physical diet right in the new year, or are you eager to commit more of your time and effort to training and growth and godliness? Perhaps by taking a chance and humbling yourself and being discipled, or by attending small group or Bible study or going downtown with 4SG to share the gospel. Brothers and sisters, the way you answer these questions might help you to see whether you are in the ark with Noah and in Christ on the in Christ in his death on the cross, or whether you are more inclined to seek your satisfaction in Vanity Fair. Beloved, if you know the Lord, you have a holy calling. You are, like Noah, called to a holy separation, unto a gracious preservation, in light of the mighty devastation of judgment we see in the flood and at the cross. As we close in prayer, ask that the Lord would be kind to show you ways in which you might, in this new year, show by your plans and priorities that you have died to this world that is under judgment and that your, your hope is firmly fixed in heaven with Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. It is a hard text, but Father, it is a text that is filled with much hope. We see your faithfulness on display, Father, and your power, your might, that your promise of death, your promise of judgment, these are words which you have fulfilled and are fulfilling and will fulfill. Father, help us to see, would you remove the blinders that exist in any of our eyes, Father, to the truth, the reality of your judgment. Help us to see, as Jesus and Peter later connect this text with the reality of coming judgment, Father, help us to see that and to repent. Father, we pray that you would be kind to us, Father, that even as you show us this, the severity of your judgment through this text, that you would show us also the comfort of your salvation. Father, that we would delight and find joy in the fact that our salvation is with Christ in heaven, that you have indeed preserved and then brought to pass so much of your plan for the seed of the new creation. Father, we look forward to that day and ask that you would hasten it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.